You ready? Turn with me to First uh, Peter chapter 5, chapter 4. We'll just start at chapter 4. As you do that, a few years ago we were uh, involved with a young couple, or rather a couple, they weren't that young, um, <clears throat> and uh, they had some marriage problems and we were involved, I was involved in counselling the, the husband and one of the issues that came up was a love of money. Uh, and the scripture says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that if anyone has a desire to be rich, it is equivalent to being a love of money. And so I took that to him and asked him what he thought of this. And uh, he could see it in the scripture and he agreed with my understanding of it, but he said, I don't have a problem with it, in spite of um, very clear evidence to the contrary from both his wife and other people who knew him. And it got me thinking, you know, as this time went on and, and he never he never repented. In fact, what he did is he put it back on me and he said, you have a problem with money and you're reflecting that onto me. And the hardness of his heart really stuck with me. And it made me think, why? Why is it that somebody can go and be in sin and, and be so hardened like that? Because, you know, the response you should have as a believer for anybody who comes to you with a sin that they see in your life is going to be what? It's going, to be to, it's going to be to examine yourself. If someone else sees this in me, I need to see, is this, is this real? Is it there? And I need to be willing to do that examination. And he wasn't even willing to do that examination. And I asked the question, why? Why do you think he was unwilling to do that examination? What do you think? Pride. Yeah, exactly. Pride is exactly the reason. It's high pitch. Pride was exactly the reason. He was, he was happy in his sin. He didn't feel his need for repentance. He didn't feel a need to even examine himself before God. And so he was happy to stay there in that sin. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to take a look at a passage in First uh, Peter here that has to do with pride. And we're going to look through this and examine it. And uh, I want to bring a few observations and a, and a number of, you know, hopefully very practical lessons that we can work through together to help us deal with this, this thing that keeps us from being holy people. So, we're going to read from chapter 4, verse 12, through to chapter 5, verse... Well, we'll read it through. Um, could I get somebody perhaps to read the chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, and someone to read 5? Daniel, uh, can you read 4 through to 4, 12 to 19, and... Uh, Vic, would you read chapter 5, verses just through 1 to through 7, please? 1 through 7. seven. 1 through 7. 5, 1 to 7. Yeah. Go ahead, Daniel. Thank you. 
19, yeah. Thank you. So uh, just by way of background, verses 12 through to verse 16, it's just give us a little bit of understanding of what's going on amongst the people that Peter is addressing in this letter. They are about to, or they are going through, some sufferings. Now, the letter was written around 62-63 AD, which is just a couple of years before uh, Nero burnt Rome to the ground, uh, and then he, of course, blamed the Christians, and that set off this, uh, this kind of huge persecution, but before that was happening, in many parts of Asia Minor and other parts of uh, you know, Rome and, and Italy and those sorts of places, there was already some persecution, general persecution going on. Christians weren't loved because they didn't get involved in the things that the, uh, the Romans did. They didn't participate in Roman religion, they didn't agree with the, the you know, they didn't get themselves involved into you know, some of the things that the Romans have believed and agreed with, and so they were doing things uh, in their own, you know, in their own right, in their own homes, and separating themselves out from these unbelievers. And so they weren't liked, and so they were starting to go through these fiery trials, these, or, these uh, ordeals that they were going through. Then Peter says something interesting in 4.17, he says, It is time for judgment to begin with a household of God. And this really sets up chapter 5, verses 1, right through to verse 11, but we're not going to cover all of those verses. Very quickly then, what he does is he's saying, because judgment is coming for the household of God, then there is a response, we'll set of responses that we as believers are required to go and do, go and enact. Okay? The first one, we see verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, and he's talking here to elders. And he's saying that elders, you, as a consequence of this judgment coming, shepherd the flock of God. If judgment is coming to the church first, then the church will need help as it goes through that. And so he gives the elders, first of all, some encouragement and some some direction about how they are to do that. So he says, shepherd the flock of God. Then he gives uh, three contrastive ways that they are to do that. And let's just go through those quickly. The first one there... Um, is, volu- is willingly, not under compulsion. The second one is eagerly, not for money. 
The third one is as examples, not as overlords. Okay? And then he gives a, a promise there. When you do this, then when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there is a reward for elders who perform their, their role as elders well. Now, um, if it goes on further. It's not just, remember the, the persecution, is the judgment is for the household of God. So it's not just the elders who are part of the household of God, is it? It's everybody as part of the household of God. But what he's doing here is he's breaking it into smaller groups, three groups to be precise, um, and he's addressing all three of those groups. The first group is the elders. The second one in verse 5 is younger men. Okay? And it, it's, we have English, yeah, we, the word men is not in the original, but it's implied, so we can stick with it. The younger men likewise be subject to elders. Okay? So, as young people, and as, and, and, you know, it goes beyond just young people clearly, we're to be subject to our elders. And that is to say that, um, you know, this is a command given. So if you're, if you're youngish, or feel youngish, and you're not an elder, this command is for you. And the command, is, it is a command, it's, a, it's not saying, you know, be subjected to your elders, whereas somebody is putting you into subjection. This is a be subject yourself. It's a direct command to me and to you to subject ourselves to the, to the leadership. Okay? And we're going to talk a bit more about how we do that uh, very soon. And the third group there, as you see, is all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the third command there is another command. Clothe yourselves. That's the command. What are you going to clothe yourselves with? The garment you are to put on is humility. Okay? So you are to take humility as if it's a cloak and wrap it over you and live in that appearance. Does that make sense? Now, the interesting thing here in the end of that verse, verse 5, is he's he then goes and quotes from Proverbs 3.34. He modifies it a little bit. But he says there, uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now the word, uh, the idea of this, you know, being proud and humble. In, in this verse, the idea of proud is the idea of, in our minds, thinking highly of ourselves in our minds. Okay? In fact, the word is a compound that takes the word, the idea of, um, high-mindedness, okay? And so he says, uh, the, the proud, the high-minded, God is opposed to. Notice that it's not qualified. He's not saying God is opposed to unsaved proud people. It's a blanket statement. God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to those who are high-minded. But he gives grace to the humble, and the idea of humility, as we read through Scripture, it's really interesting to do a study on that word. In the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the same, the same word is used to talk about low circumstances. So, for instance, it is used of, uh, of people who are, you know, have got no food and, and can't afford to feed themselves. It is used of people who, who are struggling just on a day-to-day from a subsistence point of view. It is used for, for women who are raped. It is used with regards to low 
hard circumstances, but it's not just used in that way, it's also used in that frame, that opposite to that mind, rather than being high-minded, to be low-minded. Okay, and that's more of a New Testament nuance, but nonetheless we get that, and we see that both here and throughout this passage. Then in verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And then he gives the, the way we are to do that, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. So let me just go through a few things. We're just going to go back uh, through the, this passage on elders, first of all. I want to point out three things. When we look at the... Uh, if we think about pride, pride is the thing that sits in our hearts, it's part of the old man, it's part of the flesh, and it comes out in a variety of ways. And I'm going to suggest there are three categories of ways that pride manifests, manifests itself. And all the sins that we commit will fall under one of these three categories. Okay? The first one is, uh, is praise. Okay? That is that we want people to praise us. We want people to look at us and go, that guy or that girl is just wonderful, or they're just so lovely, or they are really, I don't know, with it, trendy, pick something. We want praise from man. Right? That is one category. A second category is pleasure. And often we do things in order to obtain pleasure for ourselves. The love of money, which I mentioned earlier on, is an indirect avenue to pleasure. Because with money we can buy what we want. See, So it is an indirect avenue to pleasure. So the first one is praise. The second one is pleasure. The third one is power. And that is that we want to get ourselves into a position of power so that we can cause things and cause people to do what we want them to do. And I submit to you that pretty much every sin we commit falls into one of those three categories. Okay? If you do biblical counselling, uh, you'll, you'll probably see that as well there. So, as we go through verse, chapter 5, verses uh, 2 through 4, looking at the, uh, the elders, you can see those three things there if you look carefully. Have a look at verse 2. Not under compulsion, don't exercise oversight under compulsion, but voluntarily. What would it be if you're exercising, what if, you, if you're being an elder by compulsion, what are you trying to achieve? What's, what one of those three categories would you see it falling under? Power, possibly. Praise, yeah. You're doing it under compulsion because you, want, you don't want to disappoint people, right? Or you, you want to you'd be seen to be doing what is going to be a good thing and people will look, look up to you for it. So I put that one down under praise. The under compulsion, normally when we do things under compulsion, we don't want to do it, but we do it not normally because it's the right thing, but because we want to appear to be doing the right thing to other people. And so we want them to look at us and say, that person is a good person. The second one in verse, uh, the second half of that verse there, uh, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. What would, what would sordid gain fall under? Pleasure, yeah, because he's doing it in order to get money so he can do what he wants with the money. So yeah, pleasure. So he's, what's that? Yeah, he's, he's got another motive there. He's not doing it out of eagerness. I mean, what would that eagerness be? Eagerness to do what? 
to please. Yeah, to please. So he's eager to please himself rather than being eager to please God. So, so with the first one here, voluntarily, according to God, it's looking at what God has given us and how God has served us, and and rather than doing the same thing and, and following in God's steps, it's going back and saying, no, I don't really want to do this. I'm going to do it for ulterior motives. I'm going to do it for man. The man to look at me. The second one there, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. I don't want to please God, I want to please myself. And the third one there, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be, what? Examples to the flock. Which category would that be? Power, right? Not lording it over, because that's kind of what a, a, that's a power trip, that's a power game, but instead of doing that, you're, you're an example to others. You're demonstrating in your own humility, in your own serving of other people, that, that you, you know, you're setting an example for them. And so you can see those three categories there in those few verses. Um, so let's think about this a little more as we come to all of you clothing yourselves with humility. Before we do that, maybe I should say a few words about younger, younger men. The sin of younger men is that we think we know better, right? We think from where we stand outside of the circumstances that we can see clearly enough to be able to take the log out of the eye of other people. I remember a time a number of years ago where we had another married couple in our church who were going through some difficult times and, and, and the wife asked her husband to leave home and, and I sent an email just to one of the, to the elders saying, uh, one of the elders rather, just saying, um, you know, she shouldn't be doing this, this isn't right. And uh, I had no idea what was going on. And when I understood later on what was going on, it was a real rebuke to me because it was a very complex situation. And I just, from my outside position, thought, I know better. But it's what goes on under the covers, behind the scenes, that us outsiders don't see, that will often be the decisive factors in decision-making, right? And we've just been through a situation here at church where there's been a whole pile of decisions made and we haven't seen all of the reasons for them. But we need to trust God through those. And we need to recognise that if we were and did have that information, that we would probably make the same decisions for good reasons. So we need to trust God in those things. So that's the sin of the younger man. But here's the other one I want us to talk about a little more. All of you, verse 5, clothe yourselves with humility to one another. Taking, those, taking that idea of um, power, pleasure and praise, what are some sins that we can commit that would be the opposite of clothing ourselves with humility? Have you guys noticed, have you noticed in yourself or in other people something that people do which demonstrates a lack of humility? We're not going to point fingers, but let's just, let's just talk about a few of them. Have you got, someone got one we can start with? What do you mean by judgment? Judging others for what they're saying or doing. Okay. And how is that bad? Because doesn't the Bible say we're to judge those inside the church? No. Yeah, it does. <laughs> no, I'm not asking a question. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to understand what you mean by judgment. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So rather than seeking to understand, asking questions and being a servant, we will look at the situation and say, I know because I can see, 
and therefore this is the this is what's going wrong. And then doing something with that, right? Because the problem isn't just the doing of that, but it's when we start talking. It's when we open our mouths. Ken? Resentment for criticism. Yeah. And, and that's a classic one, and that, that man I mentioned at the beginning resented the criticism, or the, the, even the, the questioning of his character, uh, and was refusing to, to, to humble himself before that. That's a good one. Sam? Well, I was thinking that what the prideful man does is his first action is to take his eyes off God and put it down on himself. Right? Yeah. So most of everything he's going to do is going to be centered on himself as his own personal God. Now, everything that manifests out from there then is to go ahead and build up that man. So the criticism, not being able to take it, because it builds you down. Hearing words from other people, because it builds you up. So what the prideful man is doing is either he's He's changing the level of everything that exists between he and anybody else. Mm. First of all, he's unseen God. Yeah. So anything that you do that's unseen God is your problem. And that's the fundamental definition, isn't it? That God alone is worthy to be exalted. But what we do with pride is we switch God for ourselves. We exchange the creator for the creature, don't we? That's what we do. And rather than serving God and honouring God and pleasing God, we serve ourselves, please ourselves, and honour ourselves. Yeah, there's another one over here. Tim? Uh, we all fail to submit. Yeah, yeah, we fail to joyfully submit. Why do we do that? Why, what, what, how does pride cause us to not submit? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And fundamentally, the, the issue is that, you know, I'm not going to submit because, well, I am worthy to be submitted to, and I'm not going to submit to someone else. I'm going to submit to my own right. desires, my own pleasure. Vic? We have a sense of wanting to always be in control. Control, yeah, power and control, very commonly together, very common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve. Yeah, yeah, we're above that, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so um, so there's a bunch of different ways that, that we demonstrate this, and I'm kind of rushing through my notes a little bit here, but um, there's, like I said earlier on, this, this passage breaks down into two pieces. The first part is if judgment begins in the household of God, then... How are we to live in the household of God? That's chapter 5, verses 1 through to 6. Okay, So, that's what we've been talking about. How do we relate to one another in the household of God? And I, and I think one of the biggest issues that we need to watch, and the thing I continue to see in myself, among other things, is my tongue. You know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's easy. I've got no sense of humour. So, one of the blessings of that... <laughs> 
One of the blessings of that is that I have to think through. If I'm going to say something funny, I have to think it through. Will that be funny? But then often, there's a side benefit of that. The side benefit of that is I get to examine, well, why am I wanting to say that? And the issue is often because I want people to think I'm funny. (laughs) That's not going to work. And the more I try, the less it works. So, so, but one of the things, that the, the key thing there is that the things that we say, we say them because we often want people to think about us in accordance to what our hearts are thinking that makes us to do that. Does that make sense? Am I being clear? So, um, so you know, my reason for wanting to, to make a joke is that people look at me and, and, and think, wow, that was a really clever thing to say. It was, you know, what a, what a clever guy. <laughs> so they say, <laughs> don't ask me. I, and therein lies, the, lies a valuable lesson for us to humble ourselves is rather than speak, to say nothing. In fact, the Bible says, doesn't it? If you, have, if you, you let your speech be for edification, for the building up of one another, right? If you can't build up, if you can't grow somebody with your speech, should you say that? And I need to continue to come back to that and I remind myself of it all the time. The second part of humility here is not just how we talk and how we relate to one another, but also that, that last part of verse 5 is just so critical for the rest of it. Because God is opposed to the proud. Are we people who want to find ourselves with God opposing us? No. Therefore is the first word of verse 6. Therefore, because we do not want God to be opposing us, because we want him to give grace to us in humility, in our humility, we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now again, the word humble here, this is, you know, this is a command, it's a direct command. He's not saying, and we so often pray, God, humble me. He's saying, you be Humble. You see the way it goes? Humble yourself. Don't wait for God to do it, but humble yourself. Now, this, this verse is, is a bit slightly broader context here. You carry on, it says, under the mighty hand of God. And this is a really interesting phrase. If you look through scripture and you look at the hand of God, if you remember back to uh, 1 Samuel, when um, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, and they took it and they put it in the temple of Dagon. And what happened to Dagon? He fell down. And then they moved it somewhere else. What else happened? What happened to the people? They broke out in boils and in tumours, right? And so they made those golden tumours and things. They said, the Philistines said, the reason was that the hand of God was upon them to afflict them and to destroy them. And so they moved it from one city to another to try and move the affliction around. Go to Psalm 32 with me quickly. Keep your finger in First Peter. We'll go back there. Psalm 32 was written after David had repented of his sin with Bathsheba. And he's recounting the, that one year period after he was, uh, after his, when he was in his sin unrepentant. And he says there in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. Sorry, previous verse actually. 
um, verse 4, this is what he, what is the situation he was under for that year. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. He could feel the hand of God on him, afflicting him, burdening him with his conscience and with his sin, so that he would, what? Repent. And he felt that. It was like a physical weight upon him through that time. Here in First Peter, here is a people who is suffering. They are having uh, their status removed. They are having their friends abandon them and ignore them. They are having their jobs taken from them. They are having their livelihood stripped away and they have become as nothing and some may even be getting be having their, you know, being put to death. This is a people who is afflicted and God says, in your affliction, with the mighty hand of God upon you, do what? Humble yourself. So we, the, the power of this is that when we are in suffering, when we're in difficult times, it's very easy to just ask God to deliver us. But what he's saying here is when you find the hand of God upon you like that, humble yourselves under it. That's what he's asking us to do. So when the difficulty comes, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you. Okay. There's two ways of understanding this idea of exalting, or the, the word also could mean lifted up. That God may lift you up in season, the word is the time is season, right? So in due time, when it's appropriate, God will lift you up. And there's two ways you can understand that. One is that he could lift you up from the suffering. The word again in the, in the Greek Old Testament generally refers to earthly suffering. So lifting people out of their earthly suffering. And so too we can see that idea here. For people suffering, God's, it, Paul Peter is saying, Humble yourselves so that God will bring you out of the suffering again. Yeah? The other part of it, though, is that as we go through First Peter, we see he has this repeated view of the future. So in 1 verse 7, he talks about praise and honour and glory to be at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In, one, in 4 verse 13, he talks about so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice. And in chapter 5 verse 1, he says he's a partaker of the glory to be revealed. So he's not just thinking of things here on earth, he's thinking of an ultimate exaltation into glory as well. So you can see both those elements of this just here. Um, And he says the way to do that is to be casting your anxiety upon him. Again, throwing. The only other place in the New Testament this word is used is when the disciples... You know, when Jesus was going to walk into Jerusalem and they took that donkey, the disciples threw their cloaks on the back of the donkey. It's the same word used. So here we're told to throw our cares, our anxiety, on him. Because it matters to him about you. That's what it's sort of getting at there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and if we think through this, right, when we uh, when we don't do that, what we're saying is that I can handle this myself, that I don't need God, and we're acting out of unbelief. 
But we're believers. So we ought to be acting out of belief. God will relieve my suffering. And so it was great this morning hearing pastor kids saying, you know, we should not be getting involved at a governmental level as much as managing our own homes well. Because our focus is not on, you know, the, the world, but is on how do we humble ourselves under the hand of God. Butch. Yeah. 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 There is a joy, isn't there? When we when we're in hardship and affliction and we pray and God delivers us from that, there is a joy and a thankfulness we have before God. That if we don't have that attitude, we don't have. And so Perhaps sometimes you think, wonder about, you know, I often wonder, am I thankful enough? Perhaps the reason we're not thankful more is because we hold on to our anxiety rather than casting them on him and rather than acting in belief, trusting him through all our circumstances. Ken. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, let's just, uh, in the last five minutes or so we have left, I know I went long last time, I'm trying to repent. Um, in the last five minutes, let's just talk about some practical ways we can actually humble ourselves. So it's one thing to talk about, yeah, yeah, I need to humble myself, but how do you do it? How do we humble ourselves? Okay, and we, we've talked about casting our anxiety on him, but again... This has got to land in our day-to-day lives. How are we going to make this work? Vic? I think if we look at our, our lifestyles and compare it to the lifestyle of Jesus Christ, that has to be a humbling Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves with Christ is going, to be, uh, is going to be humbling every time. At least it should be. If we're reading our Bibles properly, right? Um, here's another thing we could do. One of the things I find useful is just to write down the things that I do that are arrogant. Write them in a journal and then pray about them before God and confess that as sin and ask him to help me change. Practical, right? And this is why we need one another, right? And it goes back to all of you clothe yourselves with humility. If someone asks you the question, put that humility back on and answer honestly. Don't, don't have your church face on, as my wife and I have been discussing recently. Don't have your church face on and, and live that way, but instead be honest, be humble to one another so that that other person can pray with you and you can be an encouragement back to them. So you write them down and, and confess them before the Lord. Be as a lump, yeah. Be malleable is a nice, big, fancy word for it. Um, be be mouldable. Allow, and again, when the the hand of God is upon us, let the imprint remain. Once He's done with us, does that make sense? Um, sometimes when we're struggling with an individual, say an individual has done something that we're offended by, well, there's a couple of things, practical things we can do in that case. We can rather than um, 
rather than be angry with them, we can pray for blessing upon them. So it's a proactive, here's something I'm going to do instead of being angry. And I'm going to allow God to do his work in his time with that person, trusting myself to him, and pray that God will bless them and will grow them in their walk with Christ and that they will experience more of the joy of walking with him. Uh, another practical one is if somebody has done something to you rather than, you know, and we have, just sorry, on that previous one, Matthew 5.44, pray for those who persecute you, right? So it's easy to get angry with people because we think we're being persecuted, but we're to pray for them. Serve one another rather than acting against somebody. If someone does something to us, don't retaliate. Go find a practical way you can serve them. Just something small. It may be, uh, it may be something like, um, you know, if you know they have a particular need or, uh, you know, if, if you know of something that might be useful to them, go and arrange it. Make it happen. Uh, be there to do something for them sometime. Give them something you normally wouldn't give them. Matthew 5 verse 41 says that if someone asks you to go one mile, go two. Right? So you go further and you do more because it's good for your soul. Okay? And, it's, and that's the goal here, is, is what's good for my soul? What will help me live in a pleasing manner before God? In a difficult circumstance, this is a really important one, we find ourselves in hard environments or hard circumstances, right? We need to remind ourselves that we are not worthy of more. Because the reason we grumble under circumstances is because we believe that we should have better circumstances. But yet, when we, when we find ourselves in these difficult circumstances, we need to pray before God that he will help us to remember that we are sinners deserving of damnation. We do not deserve anything good. It is all by his grace. Uh, and when you're in a difficult circumstance, don't talk to others about your situation negatively. Because then what you're doing is you are slandering God's work on your life. If this is the hand of God upon you, you don't want to be saying, what is God doing to me? God has no idea. You want to be submitting to under the mighty hand of God. You want to be humbling yourself under that and asking others to pray for you um, so that you can respond with grace and humility. And finally, examine yourself. Uh, there's a, First Peter is a book written to suffering Christians. And as you go through, he's got a whole lot of really interesting commands given to people who are suffering. Just a few of them. Be sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. Don't be conformed to the former lusts. Be holy. Conduct yourselves with fear. Long for the pure milk of the word. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Submit to every human institution or creation. Sanctify Christ as lords in your hearts, even in your suffering. Arm yourselves with the purpose of suffering as Christ did in chapter 4, verse 1. Be of sound judgment. Keep fervent in your love. Be hospitable to one another in your suffering. So as we, as we are in these difficult circumstances, there is a whole lot of different ways that we can practically get a hold of our arrogance and our pride and bring it before God and ask Him to change us. The second hymn that we uh, sang this morning when I survey the wondrous cross 
the end of the first, well, the first verse reads, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. That is the prayer of, a, of what we should be trying to do, right? All our pride, all our arrogance, pouring contempt on it, and looking to the riches of what we have been given in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the practicality of it. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to be a humble people. People, Lord, who, who seek first and foremost to please you. Who recognise our own cravings for pleasure, power and praise. And Lord, that we would forsake pleasure, power and praise, except if it's the pleasure of serving you, if it's the praise which you will give, or if it's the power ascribed to your hand alone. Lord, may we give these things back to you and no longer claim them for ourselves. Grant us repentance, we pray, by your grace. Help us to be a holy people set aside for you. Help us to willingly suffer hardship and difficulty under your hand. And may we do this, Lord, with joy and with humility and giving people, showing people the hope that we have in Christ. Grant this, we ask, that your name would be lifted up among us. In Jesus' name, amen.